Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Hi, I'm Giancarlo Esposito, and I'm here to introduce you to my new series, Parish. My character, Gray Parish, was a getaway driver. I'm retired from life. You know that. He's in a world over his head. Tell me about this driver job. And he's asked to start to figure things out. I did what you told me to. He will try to do what's right and seek justice. Parish, all new Sundays at 9 on AMC and stream on AMC+. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing from iHeartRadio. My guests today are actors from two very different backgrounds. David Arquette was born into a family of entertainers. His four siblings became actors. His mother and father were actors. His grandfather, Cliff Arquette, was a famous comedian. Even his great-grandparents were vaudeville performers. Acting is in his blood. But... He's also a diehard fan of wrestling, which is the subject of his new aptly titled documentary, You Can't Kill David Arquette. But first, I'm talking with actor Eddie Marsan. During the pandemic, I binged the Showtime series Ray Donovan. Marsan plays Ray's brother Terry, a former boxer with Parkinson's disease. Within a terrific cast that stars Liev Schreiber and John Voight, Eddie Marsan stands out beautifully. These days, Marsan is an in-demand actor who has worked with the likes of Scorsese, Gonzalez Inaritu, and Mike Lee. But growing up in working-class London, becoming an actor was a long shot. Even now, despite a long, successful career, he struggles with typecasting in the UK. When I spend time in America, I think it's race and class, and I think it's the same in the UK. Probably more race in the US. Idris is a friend of mine, and he had to come over to the U.S. and do The Wire to reinvent himself. And I needed to come over to do Ray Donovan to kind of get diversity in my career. Even now in the U.K., I still struggle to get diversity. They still define me by class. I had a really interesting uh, conversation with Wendell Pierce, who's a really good friend of mine. He was asking me what I was doing over in, doing Ray Donovan. And I said, well, Wendell, I, I never wanted to be defined as a working class actor. And he said, that's very interesting, Eddie. He said, because as a, a black African-American actor, I couldn't help but be defined because of the color of my skin. He said, and what I, my advice to you, Eddie, is don't seek not to be defined as a working class actor. Seek to change their definition of what it means to be a working class actor. And that suddenly opened my mind because I was always trying to escape it. And now I kind of think, well, no, embrace it, you know. Yeah. And Terry was a great embrace of that because Terry, when you, well, quite often because writers write working class actors, they make, because working class blue collar people speak a colloquial language, they make them sound dumb. 
And what was great about Ray Donovan, they, they were inarticulate characters, but they were very articulate in, in, a, in a weird way. Terry was a great character because really he was the mother of the family. He basically represents an Irish Catholic wife who can never divorce John Voight, even though he's abusive. <laughs> right, yeah. Right, right. Yeah. So as an actor, to play that was a very tough weird guy, to me, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's what it is. Yeah, it is a class system in the UK, and and but the US has embraced me much more, much still, still. How do they find you to do the Ray Donovan show? What were you doing that you thought sparked their interest in you? I think Liev put the call out to see if I could audition. And I auditioned for it, and I, I love boxing anyway. I used to dance when I was younger, so I'm physically quite capable. You dance and you like boxing. And you were born where? Bethnal Green. You're the James Cagney of Bethnal Green, we're learning here. <laughs> yeah. <There> we <laughs> yeah. I never thought of that. There you are. Boxing and so dancing. Yeah. The beginning of 2004, I did two movies. I did Vera Drake for Mike Lee, mm -hmm. and I did 21 Grams for Alejandro Gonzalez in Arutu. And both of those movies got Oscar attention. I didn't get Oscar attention. My parts weren't big enough. But I played that kind of part where in Vera Drake, I played a working class London ex-soldier. And I played a born-again Christian preacher for Benicio del Toro in 21 Grams. And on both sides of the Atlantic, suddenly people thought, this guy's a good character actor. There, there was an American actor who said to me, Eddie, you're a donut actor. He said, in America, he said, quite often studios pick young stars who can't act yet. Yeah. And, and he said, if you imagine a donut, the center is vacuous. There's nothing there. Yeah. Yeah. But you've got to surround it with something that's substantial. <laughs> he said, you're going to have a lot of money. You're going to be a donut actor. Our version of that was you'd play the Hackman role, we called it. Yeah. You were hired to do the Gene Hackman role, which was they had the young star who sold all the tickets and brought in all the young audience. And then they had to have someone play the admiral of the ship or somebody who could really act. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, in a sense, that's what I did. And that's what I've been doing for the last 20 years, popping up and being there and having great parts and, and just being, I'm, I'm really, I love being an actor and I love acting. What was media like, entertainment like, movies and TV for you growing up in Bethnal Green? Hoskins was a big When Hoskins came on the scene, he sounded like my father. And that was the first time I thought, that's my old man. He literally sounded like him. And that was a big thing for me. And your dad was a driver? My dad was a truck driver, yeah. yeah. And he looked a bit like Hoskins as well, a very similar kind of man. But I remember when I was younger, watching on the waterfront and being captivated by Rod Steiger. I always kind of knew... Loved character actors, always did. Loved John Robert DeVal, loved, loved Steiger. And, and then I was fascinated by character actors who became diverse. Like John Hurt in A Naked Civil Servant, where he played Quentin Crisp, this gay man in the 40s. And even as a child, I was absolutely fascinated by actors. But I had no means of which to pursue it. There was no drama school for me. Until when? Well, I served an apprenticeship as a printer. and, I, and How old were you then? I was 16 to 20. So you were out of school? Yeah, yeah. I left school at 15, no qualifications. And then I was in a club. I was dancing in a club, and somebody asked me to be an extra in a movie. And I went on this movie set, and I saw an actor doing a scene, and I thought, I can do that. And I had no idea how to do it. And, th and then it went from there, really. And what was the first job you got paid for? Oh, I was in a pantomime. In a, in a place called Chip in Norton, and I was a clown throwing sweets at kids, and the little fuckers <laughs> threw them back. <laughs> and, it, and it hurt. It was a stage show. Yeah, yeah. What's the, first, what's the first movie or TV part you got? I did a movie called Gangster Number One with Paul Bettany, 
He was gangster number one and I was the coward. And I always, Paul always said to me, Ed, if you can't be gangster number one, don't be gangster number two, be the coward. Be the coward. And I was. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, yeah. When you talk about the working class, you know, uh, when I was first working in this business, in the back of my mind, the, 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 the things that were memorable were, you know, Robert Newton. Because mm. I love Robert Newton. I yeah, love, yeah. Oh God, I know every every line, every facial gesture from Oliver Twist and so forth. So, speaking of Robert Newton and Dickens, uh, that you have a magwitch in your life, that the pip that is Eddie Marsan, you had a benefactor. I did, I did. I had an East End bookmaker called Mister Bennett. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Who was Mister Bennett? Can you say? He used to run a menswear store, but he used to run a, a book. He was a bookmaker at the Dog Track. And I used to work for him. What did you do for him? I used to I used to sell clothes for him. Oh. I used to sell smutter and stuff. I, I wasn't interested in the betting side. I used to run a, a clothing store, but he was a big bookmaker. And he said to me, what do you really want to do? And I said, I want to be an actor. And he said, well, if you get, get to drama school, I'll pay. And he did. And the funny thing is, I'm a terrible malaprop. I get words wrong all the time. So when my first couple of weeks of drama school, I had a really strong Cockney accent. And I walked in and, and he was there with his wife. And I said, I said, how's it going? I said, well, they said I've got something wrong with my voice and they want me to see a chiropodist because I, I never, I, and, he, and he said, his wife said, don't you mean speech therapist? And Mr. Bennett said, no, because he keeps putting his foot in it. <laughs> <laughs> but this guy, so this wasn't about... Uh, the guy wanted you to clean his guns or drop this bag of money no. up at the train station, put it in the no. locker for me. None of that. No, he was a really sweet, he was a sweet man. Because he was the bookmaker, if you went into a pub with him, all the local villains would know him and he wouldn't have to buy a drink because they probably all owed him money at one point or another. Well, I just love any story about mentorship and people who have benefactors, yeah. someone who helps you. You know what I mean? I mean, someone because this business is so tough. Now, so you tell me this guy, I love that. Mr. Bennett. Don't, yeah. we, don't we all wish we had a Mr. Bennett? Yeah. That would have been. No, no, is he, is, he, is he passed away? He's gone? He passed away. I was working with Ethan Hawke on a movie. And, uh, what movie? Uh, it, was a, it was a TV thing of Moby Dick. And I had a week off and I went to see him. And my wife told me that he's not going to lie. You won't be able to get back to see him. So I had to go and see him one morning. And I told him how much I loved him. Oh, you did, how, you did get to see him before he passed? I, I held his hand and I said, I, I, I said to him, I, I owe you everything. I said, I, I owe you my career, my happiness, my childhood, the mortgage, the debt, the stress, everything <laughs> I owe to you. And he, he was crying with laughter. Yeah. Oh, God. But Ethan was very good. Ethan took me up the other end of the ship and just sat with me while I cried and, and gave me a pride, made sure everyone just left me alone. He's very sweet. Actor Eddie Marsan. Another actor who outgrew typecasting is John Turturro. He says despite his success, there was a moment not long ago when he considered a career change. I, I had a sort of crisis maybe 10, 8, 9, 10 years ago. told my doctor, I said, you know, I'm, I'm done with this business. I've got to do something really important like what you do. I said, I, I want to go to medical school. I was like 50 years old. And he was like, John... You're crazy. Yeah. It's like, you, know, you know how long medical school yeah. takes, you know? And he said, like, what you do is there's a value to what you do. And I was like, no, there's not, you know? And, then, and he talked me out of it. Hear more of my conversation with John Turturro at heresthething.org. After the break, Eddie Marsan talks about playing Terry 
in the Showtime series Ray Donovan. Mom met a lot of your demands over the years. This Mother's Day, get her the Bartesian cocktail maker that makes premium cocktails on demand. In just 30 seconds, have your choice of over 60 premium or seasonal cocktails, all at the touch of a button. Get $50 off on the Bartesian cocktail maker now when you buy one pack of cocktail capsules. So, for all the times you made a mess, get mom the countertop cocktail system that makes premium cocktails without making any mess at all. For all the times you begged for soda, get her premium cocktail capsules made with real fruit juice and craft bitters. For all the times you demanded tacos for dinner, get her the Bartesian that mixes margaritas in just 30 seconds. Make mom's Mother's Day and all the 364 days that aren't Mother's Day with a Bartesian cocktail maker at $50 off. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother now to get $50 off the Bartesian premium cocktail maker. Bartesian, premium cocktails on demand. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you have health insurance, it's easy to think, I'm covered, no worries. Well, not so fast. Remember, your out-of-pocket costs are not covered by insurance. That can be a lot of money for your family. But how do you know you're not being overbilled? It's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. Unless you're a billing expert, how do you know your medical bills are accurate? HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your insurance. When your medical claims come in, HealthLock technology reviews the claim for errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. HealthLock makes it easy to find and fix hidden errors, so you pay only what you owe. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. Bottom line, insurance alone isn't enough. To save, visit HealthLock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. That's HealthLock.com. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. The Showtime series Ray Donovan is heavy. It's about a troubled family living with the legacy of sexual abuse. And Eddie Marsan worked hard to realistically portray the progression of his character's Parkinson's disease. It got very dark at times. There was a darkness in the piece. Because the thing about Ray Donovan is, what people didn't realize is, it's Trojan horse television. You kind of think it's going to be about Hollywood, and actually it's about 
three Irish brothers who were sexually abused and can't articulate it. So quite often as an actor, you would hold all this darkness about the history of being abused by priests in Boston and you couldn't express it. So, so that was tough. And for me, we created this story that Terry knew that his brothers were being abused by the priest, but the priest was given his mother solace. And so if he told his mother, she would die. So he had to allow the priest to abuse his brothers. And he was caught between a rock and a hard place. And that was what the shake was. The shake symbolized somebody caught between a rock and a hard place morally. Me and Liev used to get drained by it. Because it was unsaid, it had to be so authentic because it was unsaid. And so we had to hold it within us. You started shooting the show where? In California? In California. We started in 2012. Where did you live in California? I used to go and live in Culver City. You, you shot at the Culver Studio? Yeah, yeah. From season six and seven onwards, we went over to New York. Was that the first time you'd lived any length of time in the U.S.? No, I've, I've been working in the U.S. I mean, what I did was I made a very conscious choice that it was a real big strain on my marriage and my family life doing the show, but I knew we had to do it. So I decided that I could work and have family, but I couldn't work, have family, and have a social life. So I couldn't go, go out in the evening. I, I would literally work. As soon as I wrapped, I'd fly home. Every weekend, I flew home. No. Every From weekend. From Los Angeles back. to London? Los yeah, every weekend. No. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I'd made that choice, and it was the best thing I ever did. And your wife was grateful? Oh, yeah. And I'd come home, and we'd have uh, some days, because of the schedule, you'd have three or four days at home, and some days you'd have one day at home. But it was just to be there for the kids, just to be a presence. Oh, you just broke my heart. You have to make that choice. And actually, it wasn't bad for me. I'm not a big social animal anyway, and I love the work, and I have so much fun at work on set. That was your social life. That was my social life. What was it like for you in the, I, I know that in film, there's one director you start and finish with, and in TV, there's many directors. What did directors, we'll use Ray Donovan as an example, and we'll also talk about Brit directors. What did the American directors on Ray Donovan have to offer you? Were they helpful? Yeah, but very much so. We had the showrunner, Dave Hollander, taught me about the rhythm of multi-season, multi-episodic dramas. He, he taught me how to, to set up something in one season. You'll pay it off two seasons later. So you don't have to right. pay off everything straight away. Bingo. You, you've got loads of time. And the other thing I learned was that you don't have to play characters who are sympathetic. You just have to play characters that are empathetic. Because time restrictions meant that within a two-hour drama, a character had to be sympathetic. Over multiple seasons, multiple years, a character only needed to be empathetic. You could do the worst thing a character could do. As long as the audience thought, if I was in that situation, I would do the same thing, then you've done your job. So I began to understand the, the rhythm of it and to trust it and don't force it. Also, I've never been a big showy actor anyway. I, when I worked with Mike Lee, I learned so much from Mike Lee because as an actor, you're always, there's always a voice in your head which either wants to be clever or be true. And with Mike Lee, the answer was always be true. From that point on, I just thought, you know, don't show off. Mike would always say, you've got to dig a hole and sit in it. Well, it's interesting you look at his filmography. He hasn't made that many films. In 1971, his first movie, Bleak Moments, High Hopes, comes in 1988. And he's made six films since 2002. 
Yeah, yeah. And uh, what, what did you, I mean, you made three films with him. How would you describe working with him? Well, his work is all about creating the character. There's no script. You create the character and the story develops out of the character. And what I found with Ray Donovan, because you had a writer's room and the writers would come on set and they would be informed by my performance as Terry and me. So they would begin to write Terry based on our own our discussion. So all the characters on Ray Donovan were an, a holistic creation of all the writers and the actors and the crew together. Because... Um, it, it, there was so much that you were given to them and they were given to you. And it was very much like Mike Lee. Is he the only uh, director you've worked with more than once? No, I work with David Leach, who does a lot of superhero movies. Mm. And he always pulls me in to play this villainous part. And quite often he shoots me from behind because when the plot doesn't make sense, I can go and do ADR and say some stuff that no one sees my lips move. <laughs> you've done a lot of plays? Uh, I used to. I haven't done plays for 20 years. You haven't? Do you ever miss it? I do, but I never used to get offered good plays. It was interesting what you're saying about class. When I went over to do Ray Donovan, we were doing the second season, and it was already quite successful. And I was doing nice films on American TV, and I was playing more diversity in America. And then my agent called me and said, the BBC are doing Richard III. And I'd, I'd played Richard III. I toured Europe with Richard III years ago. And she said, they're going to offer you a part. I don't know what it is. And I thought, great, okay, this is fantastic. And they called, and it was to play a thief with two lines. And, and, and there I am going to work with Liev and John Voigt and, and Dash Myhock and, and working with all these great writers. But in the UK, I was a thief with two lines. You're a thief and of Richard why. III. But, yeah. but you should yeah. be grateful for the privilege of doing Richard III. Exactly. Oh exactly. Don't, you, don't get too big now. Don't get too haughty. <laughs> No, I found that Stafford Clark and other Brits I've worked with, it was really, I mean, just the stakes and the uh, Tony Walton, we did Equus together. And oh my God, just the rigor. I said to somebody, they said, what's the task for you now? I said, to remember that every job is a chance for me to st still to learn. Yeah. Someone said to me, what's changed in your acting? I was that guy that was standing there on the set with that director sobbing from the opening line. Oh God, how can you do this to us, lady? In this clinic, you know, we need the money and Jesus Christ. I'm like fucking going up, coming to pieces is totally wrong. And someone said, I said, how's that change? I said, well, that accessing that reservoir of emotion, which is still relatively easy, I guess. I, uh, I think you either have a knack for that or you don't. I said, everything's technical to me. It's so technical. Line, pause, pause. Like music, beat, beat. I often think of myself as a session musician. I was going to ask you that. Explain why. Because you're creating notes and you're working in collaboration with other actors. So sometimes you have to play the bass line. They're the lead guitar and you have to play the bass line for them. Right. And, 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 and it gives you a feeling of the collaboration element of the art. And fitting in. And fitting in. And fitting in. And working with Like music. I yeah. say to people, I'm here to play a part, but a part that fits into everything that what everybody's doing. When you went home... Did people recognize you? Do people watch Ray Donovan in the UK? They do. It's not as big in the UK. Why do you think? Um, just not on a big format. I mean, the people who watch it are obsessed with it. <laughs> but in the, in the US, it's, it's massive in the US. You know, the feelings that people get from Ray Donovan. I've never had it before because I've always been an actor who disappears into things. Right. And, you know, I've always been the out of focus best friend. And suddenly for people to love Terry, they get very disappointed when they find out I'm not as charismatic as Terry. <laughs> <laughs> You're not as nicest. You're not as decent as Terry. <laughs> no, Terry's decent and brave. Yeah. 
<laughs> well, of course, there was a lot written about the fact that they ended season seven very unceremoniously, no season eight. Was everybody very taken aback by that? Yeah, very surprised. I don't know what the decision was. I don't know why it was. I think there was an outline for season eight. They were going to finish the show. They had a storyline. And I think there's always talk of coming back and, and finishing it in some yeah, way. like a four-hour, like a two-part. You know? Yeah, there's something like that. Well, they got to do that. They, they're, they're not done. Yeah. wouldn't surprise me if it happened. I thought one of the most – I don't want to – this is a spoiler alert. So you folks out there listening, if you are <laughs> going to watch Ray Donovan, you can turn your volume down now while I say that the, one of the most audacious sequences in a TV show I've ever seen was when uh, everybody thought Mick was dead and he's not <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, oh, God, I blew out the back of the bus, and oh, Jesus, and he lives. And you knew he was going to live. You knew he was going to come back. But, but when he does come back, you're like, oh, fuck. You know what I mean? <laughs> this guy's the cockroach that won't die. One of the joys of Ray Donovan was to watch John act. When you get him talking about New York in the 60s and 70s and being a young actor and he gave Al Pacino a thousand dollars to do a play to put on a play and and he talks about Bobby DeVal and all these all these actors that he knew and for an actor that's just it's just manna from heaven to, to listen to those stories you're not mute about your politics no 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 why is that well when I grew up my parents had a very, very difficult marriage. I come from an area full of immigrants, lots of black Caribbean families, and I kind of took refuge in a Caribbean family's house. They kind of adopted me in a sense. So I always felt safer amongst immigrants than I did amongst the blue-collar white working class. And, and that... Those people that showed intolerance or bigotry, which is an element of the white working class, I was always more threatened by them than I was, than I felt safe with them. And I was always more encouraged and inspired and, and nurtured by immigrants. So whenever I hear racism of any kind or bigotry, it touches a trauma within me. And so I have to come out and say, I don't like populism. I don't like anybody who sees things in a very binary way. I don't trust it. I think my, my, you know, my economics, I think we have to have a certain distribution of wealth because I believe in a meritocracy. And in order for, for capitalism to be a meritocracy, someone like me has to pay more taxes yeah. for someone like me to achieve their potential. I don't trust pop, populism to me was that guy in the corner of the bar who can manage the England soccer team, run the country, but never leaves the bar. So you're obviously, you wanted to stay. You didn't want to leave. You were against Brexit. Oh, yeah. The reason I, I wanted to stay within the European Union, because I think that it, it's brought prosperity and peace to Europe in the last 50 years, and that's a great thing. I think it's great for workers' rights. I think I also distrust referendums, because if a politician lies, you can vote them out. With a referendum, they lie, and it's done. There is a populist xenophobia that has been prominent in America with Trump and prominent in Britain with Brexit. Very similar, yeah. It's, the, it's very, similar. very similar. Any of your kids show any inclination? My 12-year-old son just did a movie. Um, yeah, they're doing a movie about um, Roald Dahl, and he plays a young boy in Roald Dahl's uh, writing room who kind of inspires him to write. 
And my daughter at 16, she's just done a movie. But they spent their lives on film sets. They have a very healthy attitude. You didn't shield them from that. They were there. They saw no, it. They, I mean, because their mum's a makeup artist. I mean, my wife was much more successful than I was when we got married. I always say I married her for her money. Um, and so she was really successful. I would take my kids to go and see mummy and they would go into the makeup room. And, and, and on Ray Donovan, they used to come and the crew used to give them a radio mic and they used to run around and give everybody coffees and things. So they got a very healthy attitude towards it. You have a bunch of projects, I'm assuming, that are in a pipeline that is a, maybe a yeah. COVID-clotted pipeline. Yeah, I've got a film coming out with, um, that Sean Penn directed. Flag Day. Yeah, Flag Day, yeah. What do you play? What kind of character do you play? I play an insurance guy. Come at the end, I got a big speech at the end. Well, it was a big speech. I don't know if it's going to be a big speech by the time the film comes out. I know that. Too. But I come at the end. And um, What kind of a piece? It's a drama about a young girl and a dysfunctional relationship with her father in the 70s, and he kind of comes in and out of her life. And uh, Sean plays the father. He's, he, his daughter plays the girl. She's fantastic in it. It's a, it's a great movie. What was he like? Uh, what did he have to offer you as a director? Well, first worked with him on a movie called The, the Professor and the Madman in Dublin about four years ago. And what I found with Sean, I thought Sean was very similar to Spielberg in a strange way, mm. because what, what Spielberg does is Spielberg dances with the camera. You know, he kind of visually complements what you're doing. And Sean, as an actor, who's always aware of, of every moment, every note, every beat, and when you were being directed by him, you knew you were with somebody who was, where the, where the camera was an instrument that was complimenting you. And he was fantastic at directing it. So the chasm between the leading man and the character man is, is well-defined. And I always wonder to say to somebody like you, who's as gifted as you are, and you're truly a gifted actor. If I said to you, you're going to make seven, eight-figure salaries a year, and you'll never get to play those juicy roles, but you're going to be the number one on the call sheet. At this point in your career, would you set aside all the nutritious, juicy roles you've played to become rich and famous, or do you like things exactly as they are? No, I'd like to play some leading roles. I, I always, my analogy is that, that a movie is like a, a ghost train ride, and the central character is a neutral character so that they, the audience sit on the train and go on the ghost train ride, go on the ups and downs. But the central character is quite neutral and quite bland. And me, I play the guy who goes, boo. I do about six or seven movies a year, and I'd like to do one or two movies a year and, and really get into this. So I'd like a career like yours or like Sean, where you end up playing great character roles, but they are the leading part. Are you going to direct films? Yeah, I, I was going to direct. My mother died a couple of years ago. I was about to direct a film for, for, the, for BBC Films, but my mother uh, passed away. And when she was ill, we had to, I had to stop and, uh, because of that. I'm, I'm writing things. I have a fascination with American politics. Why? What I love about America is it, it's an idea. And it's an idea that people are trying to implement as, be as best as possible. It's a changing idea. Yeah, yeah. But it's like anything. It exposes people's shortcomings. Some people think it, it supports their bigotry, and other people, it inspires generosity. And I think that's fascinating. I want to tell you, again, that I watched seasons five, six, and seven of Ray Donovan. It's on Showtime anytime for people that are out there, all seven seasons. Eddie Marsan, I mean, you, you really, you ripped my heart out. Oh, thank you. You ripped my heart out. I mean, the, 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 
It's the sweet and the sour. It's those extremes. It's the dignity and the malevolence. <laughs> I mean, but the whole range is there. Not many people get that. And that's what you did on that show. You got everything out of that part you possibly can. You were great in that fucking show. Great. Thank you very much. Actor Eddie Marsan. David Arquette has seen some turbulent times. A very public marriage and divorce, rehab, a heart attack, and a career that stalled in part because he won a pro wrestling championship two decades ago. But David Arquette comes from a long line of performers, and he knows how to reinvent himself. My dad was a big improvisational actor, and we did a bunch of that growing up. That was built into sort of our playtime. But I wasn't really serious into it until high school. Where'd you go to high school? Fairfax in Los Angeles. Where were you living? What part of town? We lived right down the street from uh, Paramount Studios, right in Hollywood. But back then, it was a pretty crazy area at the time. Yeah. Punk rock and roller skating, you know, just all this bizarre world. Then I got into break dancing and graffiti, and I was kind of like all into that world. And then they were doing a school play. They couldn't find the lead, and they approached me. And then I met my teacher, Ben DeBaldo, who had a real impact on my life. He helped me focus on, on just acting and, like, getting into acting. And where were your and, sisters at that point and your family at they, that point? Were they all dabbling in it? Like, in my family, literally, because I'm the oldest, my brothers were sitting around in the den of our house, and I was doing a soap opera. You know, and they were sitting there stoned out of their mind and say, now, if shithead here can get on TV, why can't we get on TV? You know, there was really there's such contempt for me that launched their careers. Wow. Who was the first one to jump in the pool of your famous siblings? Rosanna really broke down the door for this generation. I mean, my great grandfather was Cliff Arquette, of course, Charlie yeah. Weaver. And then my father and my mother was also an actress. But then this generation, it was Rosanna. She ran out to Hollywood and stayed with a family that we were friends with when she was like 15 or 16. Patricia then got into it. So they were both working actresses when I was in high school. And This fascinates me, this whole family thing, because you all have such distinct personalities. Did you all have a similar goal? I don't know. There was 11 years difference between me and Rosanna. So when I was a teenager, she was a woman like starting her career and I always remember like seeing some of her early work and being really impressed by it like the executioner song and big blue and after hours I mean she was doing such incredible work and I was just in awe of her talent we all have this improvisational base because my dad was a working actor like 45 years so he'd do industrial films and commercials and and stint on the Waltons, and just kind of paying the bills. So there was also a real kind of um, blue-collar element to acting. For me, I, I still kind of hold that. Even though I love theater, I fell in love with theater. I've been able to do a couple really beautiful plays and a couple of real stinkers. But <laughs> um, well, what's one you enjoyed and where? Describe where, where was oh, it? My favorite play was at the Geffen. It was called Female of the Species. Annette Benning was the lead in it. And I learned so much just watching her. Yeah. Yeah, yeah but Annette Benning, who has that rare distinction of someone 
who became a movie star based on a performance in a play. She did the, the play Coastal Disturbances, the Tina Howe play on Broadway with Tim Daly. I've always found that if I need something to kind of get my mind right, like to get my feelings right about what am I doing and why, because movies and TV has been so daunting for me. I go do a play and all of a sudden then I, f I just feel better. Like if we were doing a revival, it was a famous piece of material. And it was a process that I was much more familiar with. Mm. Whereas movie making just seemed like, man, you got to be lucky. You know, you need a lot of luck in this business. You do. <laughs> you definitely do. When did the luck come for you? When did you first feel lucky? I, I did a film called John's way back. That was sort of my first indie film darling that went to festivals and people sort of appreciated it. And I think from there, I did a film called Dream with the Fishes. I really loved that experience. Who was the director? Finn Taylor, a really amazing writer-director. He was brilliant. It's one of my favorite films that I'd done because it was based on a true story and just really had a lot of heart and, and really beautiful music in it. And I got to work with this actor, Brad Hunt, that I'm still dear friends with. And then what happens in terms of you make a movie that makes a huge amount of money, correct? Yeah, Scream. Right. And that movie yeah, makes that bags of money. And then what happens to you all of a sudden you decide, now I need to do different movies? I could select sort of more films that I wanted to do. I had met Courtney Cox, my ex-wife, on Scream. That had been become a big focus of my life, just my relationship. And then I did a couple... Uh, studio movies but they were kind of it was funny i was watching this documentary on the casting director of of midnight cowboy and i'm all captivated by this beautiful story of this incredible artistic casting director and she cast one of my favorite films donna isaacson yeah and i'm watching it and i'm like loving it and then she's like then the studio made me start casting crap and it's like they show a picture of me. <laughs> and it was C-Spot Run, a movie I, I had done, a kid's movie, you know. So I was like, ooh, it, like, it was like this gut punch. I know people are really selective about what they do and they are protective of their careers. And I, I'm getting that more now, but I never really was. I'd always do like a kid's movie if I wanted to do a kid's movie or a, or a horror film or I'd do a, a fun, like I did this movie, Eight-Legged Freaks, which was like a throwback to the 60s kind of creature features. Like, I love all that stuff. So I, I never saw it as selling out or... You weren't calculating enough. No. You know, you made the mistake of doing what you wanted to do. Right, right. As opposed Absolutely. to what they wanted you to do, you know? Now, at the same time, because I don't want to dwell on this too much, but I just find the counterpoint interesting. When you met Courtney on Scream, she was on the TV show already or no? Yeah, she she was on Friends. They were in, like, their first or second year. Right, so it was very early on. And then she, when she comes out the other end of that tunnel, you know, she's one of the most famous women, and she's part of the, one of the most famous TV shows in history. Yeah. You were married to her for how long? 13 years or 12 years or something. So that run of that show, you were with her for pretty much the run of the show. Yeah, through the run of the show. We have a 16-year-old daughter together right. now. But yeah, through the run of the show. You know, when you are with someone in an acting relationship, I became her husband a lot. <laughs> you know what I mean? You know, you become second fiddle to a certain degree. Or like, there's an, a, an effect on your career in a sense. Or you, even just in any relationship, you just have to make start making... 
choices. Like <laughs> I remember I was up for a role in high fidelity, but I'd already committed to me and Courtney doing this film together called The Shrink Is In. And Stephen Frears called me in the office and he said, come on, you got to do this movie. You know, I know you have the film with your wife, but marriage is temporary. Movies are forever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's what he said. Right, 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 right. I had guys call me up. I had guys call me up and they said, they were like, we can always get you another wife, Alec. I mean, <laughs> you know, let's get serious. Did you get that sense from her, that the goose that lays the golden egg and you have to really, really protect that? There were risks that she couldn't take in her career? Yeah, for sure. I definitely had to watch myself. I've always been a wild character anyway. But when we had our daughter Coco, I remember the paparazzi at this point in Los Angeles had just gone crazy. They were like gangsters with cameras and they would like provoke fights with me. And I'd be like screaming like I had got this protective instinct of my child. I was like, you know, you know about no, this. I wouldn't know anything about that, David. Okay. <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. Paparazzi, so... threatening your wife, oh. your child, and you becoming yeah. really, really uh, activated over that. I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> I know. It's so, it's, it's so crazy. It was a weird time because we were, she was like the darling and, and all that stuff. And you start going to all the parties and you start meeting all the big people and, all this stuff. And then we got a divorce and I just kind of like really took it hard. Started drinking, just heartbroken. That was a tough time. Yeah. Just to sort of bounce. When, when out a family of it. comes apart, when there's no kids, obviously it's a, it's oh, a different ballgame. So hard. But when there's kids involved, you know, I mean, I got divorced yeah. and, and uh, have my daughter, Ireland. It was fucking agony, man. It was fucking yeah. agony, you know, just to, to so be another painful. statistic, you know. Now, let me ask you this. Your yeah. sister, who was born your brother, Robert, who became Alexis, Alexis yeah. right? If I read correctly, Alexis didn't emerge till she was really in her 30s, correct? Well, in within the family, she did. She, she did. came out in her late teens, 19 or something. And my mom was really liberal, and she had a really hard time with it. That was really a weird time because we were like, Mom, you're like the most open-minded she had a hard time because she knew it was just going to be a hard life for Alexis. But then she did the wedding singer and she was boy George in that. So she kind of did certain roles where she showed that side, but she didn't really come out like publicly until she was re ready to say, I only want to do, you know, either female or transgender parts. And that's where uh, she kind of came out publicly. Mm -hmm. Early 2000s, like 2004, yeah. something like that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was reading about her, and it said she was born in 69, so that makes her like 35 years old. So she was living with that and, and, and keeping that close till she was 35 years old. Oh, when she was 35, that's when she became a woman. But then at the end of her life, then she wanted us to refer to her as our brother again, <laughs> right before she died. So it's like this confusing thing where I say my brother, my sister, but... Toward the end, Alexis was like the female side of her or her wanting to be a female, she realized was connected a lot to sexuality. So at the end, she wanted to be referred more to as our brother. David Arquette. Follow Here's the Thing on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, leave us a review. When we return... 
David talks about why he wanted to get back in the ring for his new documentary, You Can't Kill David Arquette. Mom met a lot of your demands over the years. This Mother's Day, get her the Bartesian cocktail maker that makes premium cocktails on demand. In just 30 seconds, have your choice of over 60 premium or seasonal cocktails, all at the touch of a button. Get $50 off on the Bartesian cocktail maker now when you buy one pack of cocktail capsules. So, for all the times you made a mess, get mom the countertop cocktail system that makes premium cocktails without making any mess at all. For all the times you begged for soda, get her premium cocktail capsules made with real fruit juice and craft bitters. For all the times you demanded tacos for dinner, get her the Bartesian that mixes margaritas in just 30 seconds. Make mom's Mother's Day and all the 364 days that aren't Mother's Day with a Bartesian cocktail maker at $50 off. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother now to get $50 off the Bartesian premium cocktail maker. Bartesian, premium cocktails on demand. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you have health insurance, it's easy to think, I'm covered, no worries. Well, not so fast. Remember, your out-of-pocket costs are not covered by insurance. That can be a lot of money for your family. But how do you know you're not being overbilled? It's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. Unless you're a billing expert, how do you know your medical bills are accurate? HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your insurance. When your medical claims come in, HealthLock technology reviews the claim for errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. HealthLock makes it easy to find and fix hidden errors, so you pay only what you owe. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. Bottom line, insurance alone isn't enough. To save, visit HealthLock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. That's HealthLock.com. I'm Alec Baldwin, and this is Here's the Thing. David Arquette is a longtime Real Deal fan of professional wrestling. In the year 2000, he won the WCW World Heavyweight Championship, a title he held for 12 days, an achievement that was mocked by wrestling fans and Hollywood alike. His career stalled, he let himself go, and then he decided to get back in the ring. It's all captured in a documentary released last year. 
Whose idea was the movie? You can't kill David Arquette. <laughs> yeah. You can't kill David Arquette. And by the yeah. time I was done watching the movie, I mean, I thought, well, that's a cute title. That's a fun title. Uh, this is his middle age crisis. You know, he's up there. <laughs> this is like my third middle age <laughs> This is his third. When it came around to his third midlife crisis, he decided to film it. That's genius. So yeah. you do this movie, and I watched, and by the end, I was like, wow, that's a very apt title. Because you can't kill David Arquette. <laughs> when did this wrestling thing begin and why? What the <laughs> fuck were you thinking? Well, I did a movie called Ready to Rumble years ago. It was one of those like three studio films I did that kind of didn't get received very well. And it didn't even get received very well by the wrestling community at the time. It's a really over-the-top comedy. But it's since kind of grown some cult status. So I did this movie, Ready to Rumble. It was through Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers at the time owned WCW, which was like the competing brand to WWE, the two largest wrestling companies. And to promote the film, I went on and I did some like appearance and, and got involved because Diamond Dallas Page, a big wrestler at the time, and he's also the star of the film, Ready to Rumble. And we'd become friends through the process. So I came and I like did some in-ring thing. And it got a really good reaction from the crowd. So they brought me back to do a second thing. And they said, we're going to make you the champion. <laughs> and I was a wrestling fan. So I was like, no, that's a horrible You were a wrestling idea. fan. Yeah. And I've you been had been once for how long? Since I was a kid. For, since I was a kid. I always really? loved it. I'd go to the matches throughout the years and... I saw Andre the Giant as a kid, and it just kind of blew my mind. I just love it because you know, my family goes back to vaudeville. There's such a like a circus kind of connection. I love clowns. I love you know the circus world. You know, wrestling was kind of connected to that. And this you know sport that I believed for a long time was a normal sport where it's not sort of predetermined like it is. So it was like an opportunity. And all these guys that I was fans of Hulk Hogan and, and Macho Man were all at this company. And so I was like, oh, that would be amazing. And they said, we're going to make you the champion. I was like, that's a terrible idea. Diamond Dallas Page said, well, listen, if you, if you don't do it, then it's over. There's no more promotion to Ready to Rumble. There's no more wrestling. Like, that's it. And I said, well, what if I do it? They say, you get to come with us for the next two weeks, travel with all this whole show, and, you know, you're the champion for two weeks, and then you'll lose it at the pay-per-view. I'd rather be champion for two weeks than not at all. <laughs> exactly. That's what I thought. I thought, oh, I'll be the, the fan that finally became a champion. But the fact that I was a comedic actor from Hollywood, the way they saw it, married to some girl on you know, a sitcom, they didn't go for it. They rejected me. They hated me for 20 years. They'd spit on me and yell the most horrible things and, like, try to pick fights with me and all this stuff. And then the internet. Who's they? The fans? Fans. Wrestling fans. Yeah. And, and, no, no, wait, wait a second. So you were the <laughs> yeah, champion for two weeks and they rejected you because they thought you were a Hollywood poser. Yeah, yeah. So you're a Hollywood poser. But I got to like get drunk with Ric Flair in a bar. Yeah, this is where being married to her was a huge baggage for you. Yeah, you needed to be married to a woman with like scars on her face and everything. But so you're married to her, and they think you're a Hollywood poser. You do this for yeah. two weeks, but do you find yeah. that all of a sudden you want to get into the wrestling thing for real because you're sick of people thinking that you haven't got what it takes? Yeah, I mean, when we were younger, we used to scrap all the time, right? Like, get into little rumbles and fights and all this stuff. 
you know. But was it your pride that triggered you? Yeah, it was. I, I, I hated that they were like, I, I was a wuss. You know what I mean? Like, they just treated me like this like little punk. You I was being punk. bullied. I was constantly being bullied for like, and then I was like, sh- shut up. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm going to prove myself. I'll show like, you. Show you. Yeah, I did. <laughs> and how does yeah. that begin? Who do you go to, to sit there and go, I really, really want to get into this? Who do you tell that to? It built up for years. And then I had two stents put in my heart. I had a really bad reaction to a stress test. I thought I was having a heart attack. And when I came out of it, I told my wife, I've been really thinking about wrestling. <laughs> she was like, what are you talking about? Your current about? wife. <laughs> yeah, my current wife, Christina, who's incredible. She produced the film, You Cannot Kill David Arquette. She and her last name is McClarty? McClarty. And she was a correspondent for E? Yeah, yeah. She went to NYU as a journalist and then did local news and then then E and <laughs> we had met sort of at an old 80s boat party. She's just such a badass. Like the skill set that she got from being a journalist goes right into being a producer so incredibly well. And her her uncle was like a chief of staff to Clinton his first term. So she just could really get stuff done. Two stents in your heart. You say, I want to begin <laughs> yeah. my wrestling career. Well, it was one what, of the What did your wife like, say? I literally was watching my life and seeing like my friends, my family, my children. Well, kids, well, this is a life if I, if I don't make it through. And I didn't have like many regrets necessarily. But then I was thinking about wrestling. It was so strange to me that it was such a high on the list of like things that still were kind of gnawing at me so i told her i really wanted to return to wrestling i also knew i had to lose a bunch of weight and get in shape and i just thought if i were to do this process it would be fun to film it so that i could give wrestling fans the a a glimpse of the experience i had when i first wrestled so the film covers the period of your launching of your legit wrestling career yeah. And this is 20 years later now. 20, right. 20 years later, yeah. two stents later, yeah. one divorce <laughs> exactly. later, you're going to launch your wrestling career. And Christina yeah. doesn't sit there and call her divorce lawyer. She she's seems amazing. like she's really got it together. What was her she response? Does. She thought it was crazy. She did. It's all in the in the film. You know, there's also like this whole undertone was like my love for Andy Kaufman. Uh, he always loved wrestling. He actually went to Memphis and like wrestled for a year or two. <laughs> like Randy Piper was the one who slapped him, right? Uh, that was Jerry Lawler. Jerry Lawler, rather. Yeah. Jerry Lawler, and he sorry, also yeah. I wrestled Jerry Lawler in the in the documentary, and I got him to do a pile driver just like Andy. But it literally messed my neck up to this day. It's it's so much more dangerous and painful and like uh, physically challenging than anything I'd ever done before. I never knew like how how real it is. <laughs> it is more, there's more contact than you'd think. So my view of it, I mean, my sense of it is, I think most people share this, is that it's an extraordinary amount of physical conditioning. These guys and these women who do this look great. They're all athletic and ripped up and strong and powerful and muscled up and everything. And there's just enough reality and just enough violence to make it look real, but it's all choreography and, and, and I mean, there is some spontaneity, but it's all worked out for the, the safety of those involved. You don't take somebody and smash their face through the glass table, you know? 
Sometimes people do, actually. <laughs> you know, it is all like worked out, but what you learn very quickly that people in the ring sometimes have other things going on in their life. There's something called a receipt. Like if somebody hits you with something, you can get a receipt to hit them back at some point. A lot of stuff happens in a wrestling ring. That's not when you work with like super pros, like the real pros. You could get in a ring with them and everything's smooth and, you know, looks like they're killing Seamless. you. And it's, it's beautiful. Yeah. So. What was the most painful thing that happened to you in the ring? Well, I had this death match where I got stabbed in the neck with a light tube, and that was pretty. That's in the <laughs> that film. Was painful. Yeah, that's the film. But that actually wasn't the most painful. I think the pile driver by Jerry Lawler, or um, I got put through a table through my back out against Bully Ray. Those were some of the most painful. You hit the the mat so hard all the time. I got this kind of reoccurring whiplash is pretty much what it is. One of my muscles that connects my shoulder to my neck just has never been the same. But the really interesting thing is you learn a lot about acting. Like it has to be real. Like you have to tap into these emotions that you could tell a story without making a sound. You have to show that you're scared or like, now you're filled with anger, energy. Yeah. yeah, and and it's all in your eyes, and it's all in this thing. But it's also, when you get into a wrestling room, time speeds up. You'll do something and think, like, I'm going to stomp to the corner like a upset little kid. And I'll watch it back, and I, like, run to the corner. I was like, wait a second. I thought I took so much time doing that. But when you watch it back, it's so much quicker, so it, it – teaches you to really be in the moment there's this connection with an audience that you don't even have in a play it does like then move into this oh you're doing a sport you're combining like (laughs) i was in my therapist's office and i was like oh because my least favorite thing in the world is war and violence toward others and i don't want to hurt anyone so uh i was like wow that's my least favorite thing and here i am simulating violence Did this work that you put in for the film, the wrestling thing and coming back 20 years later, did that rekindle your love of acting as well? It did, yeah. It did. It grounded me. For one, it made me really just grateful for life. There's something that I've always tried to do is sort of stay in touch with people. You know what I mean? Not get all caught up in Hollywood and that world. I like people. I like really interesting characters that you'll meet in the world. So you find a lot of them in the wrestling world. You see a lot of like human nature in the wrestling world. And yeah, it keeps you grounded. What did your sisters say about... They were freaked They 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 appear in the film very fleetingly. What did they think about you getting light tubes smashed in your face and all this stuff? (laughs) Yeah, that wasn't... (laughs) Everyone was really upset about that. My wife was like, I just feel like you want to die. And I was like, I don't want to die. But I've definitely been beating myself up. For I don't want to die, but I'm thinking about it. <laughs> well, yeah. I'm mulling to it be over. honest, there's definitely a sadomasochistic element to deathmatch wrestling. People are doing it for some reason. They're beating themselves up. They're numbing themselves. They're kind of experiencing this. It's also this connection with these fans that are watching it, and they're like blood hungry. Like it's, they freak out. There's like. When I went into that room, they hated me. Like, they literally did not like me. And then when I was leaving, they were cheering me. So I kind of won them over in that moment. So, so here's this image I have of you, because I've seen other people like this. 
I've seen people in the 40 years that I've been working as an actor since 1980, I've seen people where like the path you can take, and of course there are diverse paths, they're not all the same, but you achieve a certain place in the business where you can relax. You know, there's work there if you want. It isn't always what you want to do, but one for them, one for you. You can make a little indie movie. It's a clever part. Now, do you think that's true of you? Do you think there was a point where you just sat there and said, fuck this, man. I just can't, I can't be what they want me to be. Yeah, I do. There's a lot about the business that doesn't appeal to me. And I just, I'm horrible at auditions. So just doing auditions, but I've done a bunch of like little scrappy films just to like help first time directors and this and that. Like, you know, I've been acting for 30 years and I'm in a set, just super ultra low budget, just to still stay sort of connected to it all. It's a long journey, you know? And you're yeah. starting out and come to L.A. <laughs> and you know, your grandfather is this famous actor and your sisters become famous. And then you marry the, the prom queen and, and you go through everything you've gone through. And look where you are now. You're married. Your wife's a doll. Yeah. You have a lot to be grateful for. You got two Absolutely. little kids. You're, you're still alive. Even in spite of your best efforts, you're still alive. Yeah, and I get to, to have an interview with one of my heroes. You've always <laughs> been a hero of mine. You really are no, an incredible no, no. actor. I've always been a huge fan. Listen, I hope you have a lot of great things coming up for you, man, because I think that you're really, you're just so original. You know what I mean? You're so, I watch you in that movie. <laughs> and I hope people watch this movie. they got to see this movie. You Can't Kill David Arquette. It is really, really, really a lot of fun. to And painful. There's a lot Thank of painful you. things, in it, but it's fun. I appreciate it. Thank you. Best of luck to you, buddy. You too. My thanks to actors Eddie Marsan and David Arquette. We're produced by Kathleen Russo, Kerry Donahue, and Zach McNeese. Our engineer is Frank Imperial. Thanks to Sarah Ivry and Justin Wright. I'm Alec Baldwin. Here's the thing is brought to you by iHeartRadio. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org.